Welcome to the Move to Value podcast, powered by Chess Health Solutions. The Move to Value podcast is dedicated to helping healthcare providers understand and make the transition into value-based care. We do this through conversations and the sharing of innovative ideas with experts and leaders throughout the healthcare industry. Our mission is to sustainably transform the healthcare experience for the patient, provider, and care team by cultivating a value-oriented, compassionate, and health-aligned community. In this episode, we pay a visit with Matt Zavodsky, EMT and Chief Transformation Officer at MedStar Mobile Healthcare, a high-value emergency medical services system that provides advanced clinical care with high economic efficiency. Matt, welcome to the Move to Value podcast. Um, I'd like to start with, with you telling us a little bit about MedStar, what your organization does, and how it has impacted the communities in which it operates. Thanks for asking. MedStar is the trade name for a public authority called the Metropolitan Area EMS Authority. We are a regional governmental administrative agency that is created by 15 member jurisdictions to provide emergency medical services across all 15 of those cities, irrespective of city boundaries. It's, a again, a regional public authority. The challenge was that the metropolitan area EMS authority was way too many letters to try and put on the side of an ambulance. <laughs> so we, when, the, when the authority was formed, the community had a naming contest back in 1986, and MedStar was the name that was chosen. So we are that public authority. We provide 911 and non-emergency medical services, emergency medical services to about 430 square miles with 1.1 million population. Fort Worth is our largest member jurisdiction. There are 14 others. Um, and we do so without any tax subsidy, which is a little bit unusual being a public authority, much like you might think about a transportation authority or an airport authority, but we receive no tax dollars. So it's a very high performance EMS system. Well, Matt, what is mobile integrated healthcare and how does it reduce utilization? And also, what are some of the proactive measures that are being done? Mobile integrated healthcare is a term that has been used by the EMS profession to categorize services that we are able to provide that may or may not be the result of a 911 response. Most people think of an EMS agency as you know, a group of, of experts who hang around a station, wait for a 911 call to occur, and then we respond, mitigate the emergency, and then schlep people off to an emergency department. What we've learned over time <clears throat> is that there's a certain portion of our population who could benefit from some proactive education, medication management, connection with other resources in the community, maybe reconnection with their primary care network to actually prevent a 911 call. So the term mobile integrated healthcare is really that umbrella term that refers to all of the things that EMS agencies can really do to improve the health of, of populations, to reduce the expenditures of, of the healthcare system, and to more, most importantly, improve the patient's experience of medical care. Well, can you tell us some of the healthcare roles that EMS has transformed? So that's a great question. And if you think about it, one of the major transitions and transformations 
has been that prevention of the 911 call. We have always been reactive as a profession. EMS agencies, sort of by nature, react to a 911 call. But what we're doing now in, at MedStar and a number of other agencies across the country is working with partners, payers, hospital systems, home health agencies, hospice agencies, ACOs, to fill a gap that still exists in our healthcare system. And those gaps are different depending on the population and the partner that we're working with. So for example, a hospital system has a bunch of frequent flyers that come to the emergency department for ambulatory care sensitive conditions. Those things that really had they seen their PCP or their primary care system, that ER visit would have been avoided. They identify those patients, refer those patients to us. We go visit them with specially trained community paramedics who are trained in things like motivational interviewing and social determinants of health, in addition to doing the typical things that paramedics do, 12-lead EKGs, medication administration, vital signs assessment, um, following protocols. So now you've got these community paramedics who can reach out to the person who ends up in the emergency department three times last month with congestive heart failure, pulmonary edema, and the ER doc is befuddled as to why. The cardiologist just can't figure it out. But when the community paramedic goes into the home, finds out that it's a family that eats pepperoni pizza three times a week, or that the patient lives on a second or third floor walk-up in Texas, where it's 110 degrees in the summertime, and when the person gets to their third floor apartment, they've decompensated and are now suffering from uh, pulmonary edema or their emphysema has flared up. And we work to get that patient, for example, moved to the first floor apartment instead of a third floor walk-up. The PCP would never know that because they don't typically go to the patient's home. The ER doc certainly wouldn't know that. Same thing with the diet that we talked about earlier, that menu. Um, many times patients get discharged from the hospital with a booklet of discharge instructions. And let's face it, when they're being discharged from the hospital and they're getting their discharge instructions, they are barely listening. But yet when someone can sit down with them and their family in the kitchen and literally take an hour or two and go through every one of their discharge instructions, explain why it's important to take their Lasix, explain why it's important to not eat a high sodium diet, look in their refrigerator, look in their cabinets, help them with that process, we can change the behavior. And then give that feedback to the primary care physician, to their primary care network to say, hey, here's what's going on in the home. Um, and they can change that patient's whole education level um, to really keep them out of the hospital. And that high utilizer population um, is only one. We work with the hospitals on things like readmission prevention, observation discharge um, avoidance, so they don't have to be admitted to the hospital under observation status. Um, and then again, partnering with payers and ACOs, and now a lot with hospital and the home providers to really be that episodic care for the hospital and home patients as well. One of the great things about EMS is that the communities that we are in, and we're in almost every community, right? Because you've got your local EMS agency, is they are a trusted group of people. And even the most suspicious patient who 
might be afraid that someone's going to come and take their kids away or make them go into a nursing home or do something like that. When, when someone comes to their door in an EMS uniform and knocks on the door, they let us in because we've been in their home at two o'clock in the morning when they can't breathe or when they've crashed their car or when their kid has fallen. Um, so that trusted resource really lends itself well to patients listening to the recommendations and the instructions given by the paramedic. Would you talk about the utilization outcomes for the home health partnerships that you have in place? One of the gaps that we help fill is with home health agencies. Um, patients who are on home health generally are relatively medically fragile and they activate 911 quite a bit. They may have needs literally 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the goal of the home health agency is to prevent those patients from going to the emergency department. Because if they're contracted with a payer, if they're contracted with a hospital, and they have a high ER utilization rate in their cohort, the payer is going to stop using them or the hospital is going to stop using them because that's against what they're using home health for. So we have several partnerships with home health agencies that do two important things. The home health agency registers their patients on service with us. Every time they do an intake on a new patient, one of the intake processes is they notify us that this patient, patient A, is now on their service. We register that patient in our 911 computer-aided dispatch system. And if, and what we find more often than not, when that home health patient calls 911, they're flagged. And we take the call just like we would any other 911 call, but we also dispatch a community paramedic to co-respond with our ambulance. And then simultaneously, our 911 center calls that home health agency and says, hey, ABC Home Health, it's MedStar, listen, I want to let you know, patient A just called 911 for difficulty breathing. Um, Tim, our on-duty community paramedic, is on the way to the scene. He'll call you in about 15 minutes once he does an assessment. So now the home health agency can contact their, their on-call nurse, who brings up patient A's medical records on their home care, home base system or Kinzer, whatever they're using, so that when Tim calls the on-call nurse at two o'clock in the morning and says, yep, you know what? He's got, you know, two pillow orthopnea and he's got rolls at the bases, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. His 12 lead looks good. His vital signs are relatively stable. Um, we're going to start an IV, give him some Lasix, um, stay here for about a half an hour, let the ambulance go or stay over however long we need to. Um, measures urine output, and can you come see him tomorrow? And we don't take him to the hospital. So the home health agency benefits from avoiding an avoidable ER visit, good care coordination on scene, and now they can follow up with that patient the next morning to make sure that they're stable. Maybe they need to adjust their Lasix. Maybe there was some educational gap, work with the cardiologist, whatever the case might be. So that brings huge value to the home health agency, and they pay us for that type of on-scene care coordination from a 911 call. But then there's a second service that's part of that expanded role, and the home health agency can call us on a 10-digit hotline into our 24-hour 911 center and say, hey, patient A just called here. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. They're complaining about a little bit of difficulty breathing. They didn't call 911, but they called us because they didn't know what to do. Um, it, it's going to take us two hours to get a nurse out to the house. Or quite frankly, it's 
too expensive for us to pay a nurse overtime for four hours minimum pay to go out and assess this patient. Um, will you guys please send the on-duty community paramedic to do an assessment and call me? And we do that. And to, to give you an example of, of how often that is used, so far we've had about 3,700 home health patients registered in our system. 72% of those 3,700 patients have activated the 911 system, which is not surprising, but when you start putting the numbers to it, you really say, wow, that's a lot of activations, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, so those are the calls that we're sending this community paramedic to along with the ambulance and doing the on-scene care coordination. And when we do that, um, only about 51% of the time are we actually transporting someone to the hospital because the rest of the time we're able to mitigate it on scene, care coordinate with the home health agency, and not take them to the emergency room. In addition to that, the home health agencies have asked us about 600 times to go see an episodic case, middle of the night, weekends, even during the day if they're super busy. And when we go to those calls, only about 6% of those patients end up needing to go to the emergency department. We mitigate it on scene and really just become that service level extension of the home health agency. So huge value to the home health agencies. Um, we do the same thing with hospice agencies for the same reason. We do almost the exact same type of program for multiple hospice agencies to prevent patients from going to an emergency department who are on hospice. Um, and it works really well. The patients benefit, the home health agency benefits, and certainly we benefit because we've changed our model and we're getting revenue by bringing more value to the rest of the healthcare system. That sounds like a major shift in utilization reduction. Yeah, absolutely. And we see that across all of our programs. You know, for years, EMS agencies were only reimbursed if we transported someone to the hospital from a 911 call. And what we've been able to do over the last decade is really, really explain to the payers, Medicare, Medicaid, commercial insurers, anybody who will listen, that all you're really doing is incentivizing us to spend your money because we know that only about 10% of the 911 calls that we respond to are truly life-threatening. Another 20% probably need acute care right now in an emergency department. But 70% of the calls that we respond to can probably, and we're showing more and more, can be mitigated on scene, referred to another healthcare resource, whether it's urgent care, primary care, self-care at home, follow up with your doctor. And that navigation as opposed to transportation, is what is starting to be reimbursed and really bringing more value to not only the payers, but care management organizations, ACOs, um, IPAs who are in a shared risk arrangement with, with payers. And that's really the transformation that's occurring with EMS. That's outstanding. So, Matt, you mentioned during your presentation during the Move to Value Summit that you're still very active as a practicing EMT. From your experience, what do patients seem to want when they call 911? What do patients want when they call 911? That is, is the gold ring question. And it probably falls into two types of calls. The type of call where the patient truly feels or knows that there is a life-threatening medical emergency occurring. 
dad is unconscious and unresponsive. The kid's unconscious and unresponsive. Toddler fell out the window. Motor vehicle crash with a rollover, an ejection. Um, you know, those types of calls fall into that 10 to maybe 30% bucket where, yep, this is a true emergency. We need somebody here to stop bleeding, start breathing, start pressing on the chest, you know, whatever it's going to take to sustain life until they can get to definitive care in the hospital. And, and that's great. Some patients really need that. They want that. And that's why they call. What we're finding, especially during the pandemic, it was really accented um, through that process, is a lot of patients call 911 to see if they needed to call 911, right? Because they don't know what's going on. So, you know, a little bit of difficulty breathing or they're vomiting or they just don't feel well or there's a kid with a fever. Um, and, you know, they want someone to come to their house who they trust, who wears a stethoscope around their neck, who has an EKG machine, who can check blood sugar, who can, you know, check oxygen level to see, do I really need to go to the emergency room or not? Or can you do something for me now that A, reassures me, B, maybe fixes the, the problem that I'm having so that I can go to my own doctor? The, the classic case in that is, is a diabetic where, you know, somebody goes into insulin shock and we get there and they're stuporous or they're unresponsive and we check their blood sugar and it's 30 and we start an IV and we give them D50, the wonder drug. They wake up. We, you know, have the family make them a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with, you know, marshmallows on it or whatever. And that patient does not need to go to the emergency room. They, they're, and we check their blood sugar. It's now, you know, 110. They, they need to see their endocrinologist because maybe they need to have some adjustments with their insulin or whatever the case might be or their diet. But we don't need to bring those people to the ER. And they wanted to know that, but we fixed their problem. Same thing with asthmatic, same thing with a number of things that we can correct in the field so that they can now go see their normal care provider. Um, we had a, a case recently that just typified this where we had a diabetic who um, the family called because his blood sugar was showing high. And we found that in fact, his blood sugar was like, you know, 300. And normally we would take that person to the hospital, hydrate them, there's not a lot we can do. Uh, where the hospital's going to see him, an ER doc who doesn't know that patient's going to run a whole bunch of tests and be concerned about DKA and doing all sorts of stuff. But what we do instead is now we call the endocrinologist and say, hey, we're here. We started an IV. We're hydrating him. Uh, his blood sugar's 300. Um, what do you want us to do? Do you want us? And he says, oh, his blood sugar's only 300. Yesterday he was in the office. It was 450. So he's doing better. <laughs> it's just when you connect the person with their PCP who knows that patient, you get better decisions that are patient centric um, so that, you know, patients want to know that they're going to be OK. And there you go. Um, and I think that more and more, that's the role that we're starting to fill. Matt, this is very reminiscent of an era when providers would make house call visits to their patients. And we facilitate the doctor doing the house call, especially today with telemedicine and all sorts of different things. We can be in the home, whether it's on a 911 call or an episodic request by the payer or by the physician practice or whomever, and telemedicine the doc in and say, yep, okay, here's the vital signs, here's the 12 lead, here's the blood sugar, here's the SAO2. Um, and we can be that extension of the physician where he or she can still be in their office, they can still be at home if it's on the weekends or whatever. They don't have to go out. We can help facilitate that and just, again, bridge that gap between the patient and their physician. 
Matt, would you be willing to stick around so that we can continue this conversation in our next episode and perhaps talk about how this innovative care model is impacting value-based contracts? Let's do it. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Move to Value podcast, powered by Chess Health Solutions, where our mission is to sustainably transform the healthcare experience for the patient, provider, and care team. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. As always, you can head over to movetovaluepodcast.com to sign up for the email list, as well as check out all the resources in the show notes. If you are interested in continuing to hear about value-based care and how it impacts you, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, we would love it if you would share the Move to Value podcast across social media and leave a rating and review. See you next time.